really need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Dave Debo. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. And good morning. This is Dave Debo. You heard during the introduction we said, how can we not talk about race? Today, I think, is one of those days where we cannot not talk about Memphis. After the release of the videos showing Tyree Nichols being beaten by police over the weekend, there is much to discuss, and we will do that for the next hour here. Coming up in a little bit, Miles Gresham will be here. He's a policy fellow with the Partnership for the Public Good. He's a longtime advocate for more police accountability, so he'll be weighing in in about half an hour. But in the meantime, John Torrey is with us. He's a professor at SUNY Buffalo State. I think we call it state still, not a university yet, right? Buffalo State University. It no, changes. As of the 23rd. Okay, I knew it changes. Uh, he's in their philosophy department. He's also with their Africana Studies department, and he's a member of the city's police reform commission. So someone who, again, has both the combination of expertise and, I think, uh, opinionated commentary here that's that's well worth hearing. Professor Torrey, thanks for stopping by. Thank you for having me. I really uh, appreciate the opportunity. I hate that it has to be under these kinds of circumstances. I, I but... understand thoroughly. I'm thinking this is the most trite question, but it's also really, really relevant. What did you think when you saw the video? My first thoughts were expletives that I probably can't say on air. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but after that, it was that this was horrifying. Um, I described it as every citizen's worst nightmare. In my mind, we can imagine we're driving and out the blue, a bunch of flashing lights come up. And within a matter of moments, a bunch of the people who are designed, who are there to protect your rights, immediately start violating your rights. And as a citizen, you have a, a responsibility to assert your rights. That's why we've got them. And so in the process of asserting your rights, you've managed to get away from what is clearly a, a violation of your constitutional rights. And let's put it in the context of history. Um, you're a man of color. I'm not. This sort of thing could probably happen to you more often than me. Oh, when I say it's a nightmare, I do mean a personal nightmare. Yeah. Uh, my, my heart rate increases any time I see the flashing lights get behind me. I, I, it's like a visceral response because in our, our heart of hearts, we think the worst thing that happens is a ticket. The worst thing that happens is a talking to of some sort, like, please slow down. And that's it. And you go about your business and they go about theirs. But we know that these kinds of moments not just can happen, but they do happen. And when they do happen, they can they don't just harm or maim people. They can end up with people dying. And again, in terms of like nightmare scenarios, that's that's the one I think of. What is the systemic problem? Is it is it the attitudes the police are trained with? Um, much has been made of the fact that the police involved in, that have been charged in this particular case 
are also black, as was the victim. Uh, so some people are saying racism is not necessarily part of it. Uh, what What's the problem? Are, uh, th- there's the phrase out there, ACAB, all cops are bad. Um, is is that the root of this? So I, I don't want to get on a limb and disparage the idea of being able to have people available to help you stay safe. That said, how it's happening certainly seems to bleed out into black and brown communities significantly more with uh, things like broken window policies, with, uh, with task force and strike forces like the Scorpion Force or uh, like, the, like the strike force policy, uh, task, uh, task force we had up here in Buffalo. Um, these are examples of policing and approaches to policing where the emphasis is on the expectation of who's doing the crime. And so I think some of this gets down to uh, it's why black officers can uh, can brutalize a black civilian. It's because there's an expectation that you are the people doing the crime. You are the people who need to be surveilled. You are the people who have uh, uh, a condition to to break our social rules. And as a result, we have to keep extra eyes on you. We need to be in your communities more often because we think you all are the people that do this. I think it's a, a problem of, of, of recognition of, of black people as black people as opposed to potential future criminals. You mentioned Memphis's Scorpion Unit. Similarly in Buffalo, the Strike Force, which was, according to some lawsuits that are still pending, uh, definitely targeting the east side, making that kind of assumption you just said about certain people who can commit the crime. That force has been disbanded, but I'm still wondering whether there is not a larger training issue. If you're saying the expectation is certain people commit the crime, certain people don't, that's more of a mindset than just, oh, I'm part of a task force that is concentrating my efforts on the east side. Yes, yes. I I, I do wonder if this is something that, I, I, part of me wonders if this is beyond training in police and more of a genuine cultural problem in our society with how we see and and respect black and brown people uh, in the country and how we understand them to uh, to participate in our society. Do we expect these to be people who who uphold the laws or do we consider them as the lawbreakers? And where does that kind of get reinforced and perhaps codified? And we might find that more inside of the police training or just in the in the nature of the policing itself. So perhaps let's assume training is doing what it's supposed to do because they, they certainly didn't train him to beat that young man like they did, right? Right. So let's assume they're doing pretty well with how they're supposed to be training. They can't train out cultural biases in ways that we might want to hope. And I think that's a, perhaps a concern inside of, uh, of policing, right? It's um, do you see me as a person? That's one reason why people ask for more community policing. That way it's I'm a member of your community. You see me as someone like you as opposed to a potential future criminal. Uh, but so I wonder how that I wonder how that can be trained in inside of police protocol or if that might just be a reflection perhaps of a of of conditions in our society that have have significant historical roots as well. And if that is the case, if it's more than just police, if it's inherent in our society, that takes a lot more to to fix than just train our police better. Yes. Yes. I I, I do not think this that uh, we should stop with. Let's improve police training. It, this should be a call to action to let's improve our society. This is, a, this is a reflection of how poor treatment of black people and brown people can occur, um, how poor treatment of, of, of violent treatment of black men can happen. 
and that's a systemic issue across our society, and police are just one institution of many that have to have to reckon with that. Talk more about that then. How do we change society? And I realize that's probably <laughs> a bigger question than the remaining 20 <laughs> minutes here. Uh, that's the million-dollar question, my God. Yeah. Um, I'm a big believer, so I'm in higher ed, and yeah. so I'm a big believer that part of what we do to change society is we do have to change how people recognize other people in our societies. Part of that comes through storytelling, part of that comes through uh, telling accurate histories, and part of that comes through community building so that you can actually bridge gaps. Uh, I always think about people who, uh, who don't have any experiences with black people in America, and there are wide pockets of this country where you may have a handful of black people in your community. So your, 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 your experience is drawn perhaps from media, from stories that other people have told you. And perhaps you go to another city, another state, go away to college, get a new job. And now there, here are these people you've heard about, but you have very little experience actually interacting with them. I wonder what does that person think when they're, what's their first move when they're engaging with those people? Do they see them as a new individual to engage with or a version of the stories than the histories they've been told. I would like to think that on that first encounter, someone is able to see that other person different from the stereotype. They might have that stereotype in the back of their head, but they meet the person and say, hey, John Tory's a nice guy. Maybe my feelings about black people aren't, aren't so bad. Um, the individual interaction has the potential to change that narrative. But does it? So it has the potential. It frequently ends up devolving into, well, I have a black friend. Ah. Right? So we have the individual, the the unicorn who stands who stands uh, alone compared to the masses who are very much not like this person. So yeah, John Tory's a nice guy because he's not like these other. But guys. he's not like okay, right? Wow. And so that's a concern. I, I, so relying on the individual in, uh, interactions is important because we are uh, you know, we're people. We are going to interact with each other, but. Having that as an expectation that it'll that individual interactions alone can help cross the line, cross the finish line, we found so far at least it falls short. It, uh, it gives, I think, a lot of people a, a sense that they can pat themselves on the back that they've been able to perhaps cross a cultural barrier, but they haven't been able to stay in the other side of that cultural barrier. You said that storytelling can change the narrative, also community building. I can see why examples, changes in the media, or yes, just interaction, the storytelling part has potential. What do you mean by community building? How can that change things? So I think institutions of all kinds, so I, I, I think of higher ed, for example, we have a responsibility to not just the people who we serve inside of our institution, but also to the communities that we're in to make sure that we're responsible to the stakeholders, right? Like we're, we're there to help uplift and prop up uh, education as a beacon for this area. So we have a responsibility not just to educate here, but also participate in our community and to outreach effectively using our tools and our supports and our, res and our uh, resources. When I think of community building, uh, at least at an institutional level, that's what I'm, that's what I'm considering. It's, it's, it's finding ways to leverage your resources, your skills, your tools to the benefit of the community so that they can end up relying on you and having trust. I, I, I remember seeing an NBC News poll the other day about how there's very little trust in, in institutions, right? And that 
that strikes me as there's been a, that, that because there's been a lack of, of building community. It's uh, the communities of all kinds feel isolated, feel um, left behind by their governments, by their institutions. That seems like, a, again, another call to action for institutions to do a better job of meeting communities where they are. So if they don't trust you, perhaps the first thing to say isn't, well, trust me. It might be to show that, they're, mm. that you're deserving of trust. John Torrey is with us. He's a professor at SUNY Buffalo State. He's a member of the city's Buffalo Police Reform Commission. Take me through the history of that. Uh, this was a couple years back when then-Governor Cuomo said, in light of Black Lives Matter, every police department has to come up with sort of an action plan to at least say that they are addressing certain things. And then the city government turned to a board, of which you were part of, yes, to develop those recommendations. A lot of the recommendations that I understand came out in the city of Buffalo are things that Memphis is now considering. Uh, the end of no-knock warrants, the uh, obligation to intervene law that up here became known as Carroll's Law, both of those are under consideration in Memphis. Uh, the strike force, because of the litigation there, the strike force that primarily was seen to have concentrated its work on the east side has been disbanded. Similarly, the Scorpion Force in Memphis. What can, what should police departments like Buffalo learn from Memphis, or are we ahead of the curve? I think it's perhaps a little bit of both, right? Like, so... Compared to what's happened in Memphis, and I, I have I've forgotten to leave this. I did my graduate work at the University of Memphis, so I spent a decade oh, down okay. there. This, uh, seeing all of this, really, it hit home. And I have a very good friend of mine who we watch, unfortunately, these police brutality videos uh, for the last decade together. And uh, it just reminded me of how the people down there are as real as it gets. And so their response is something that I'm I'm... I'm proud of that they were arguing and agitating for justice. I had to make sure I say that because I, yeah, I, yeah. I, you know, and I imagine ago. too, as you watch the video, you know that street, you feel it. Yes. Oh my God. I, I, the, the seeing the car, right? I, I, the Memphis, unlike many other cities, has one police car. You know when the Memphis police are coming. <laughs> so seeing the car and seeing the flashing lights and and seeing um, the space that he's in and knowing that I have walked those streets, that I've been pulled over by those police officers, that I've you know, me and a number of my friends, family, colleagues, we, any of us could have been that man, that young man in, um, at any given day. It and made it visceral for you. Overwhelmingly so. But let's get back to the question. What can Buffalo learn from Memphis or has it maybe already learned and is on a better path? I think we were preemptive um, with regards to, say, shutting down strike force and I want to say the housing unit, right? They were there were allegations that there was perhaps wrongdoing going on inside those mm -hmm. units. Like you said, there was litigation. And so they were on the front end of that to go ahead, disband those units, reallocate those resources. Uh, and again, I think that changes how the perception of the policing happens when we're not placing certain units inside of certain neighborhoods because of an expectation that the people in those neighborhoods are high crime. I, um, I'm also sensitive to the fact that doing the job is very, policing is an overwhelmingly difficult job as well. Uh, that said, we can learn from Memphis that uh, policing and cultural biases inside of our police forces across the country do not do not limit themselves to say race and just uh, you know the, the white cop is going to do this to the black cop. This is mm -hmm. how we understand the nature of the responsibilities that we have as as the security forces, as the protectors. Uh, one of the things that I really did appreciate about the 
the, the work we did on the commission was that we did promote wanting to have the duty to intervene. We did promote wanting to have a, a, a duty for, uh, for, for care of life, which are conditions of, of policing that we would want to have. Uh, as, as an ethics professor, I often teach my students, I use the example, if you were to see someone get jumped outside the room right now, would you intervene? You know, would you would you call somebody? Would you holler? Would you take a picture? Would you call nine one one? Would you jump in and try to stop it? Because we have a duty as as people, as members of our community. If you see wrongdoing occurring, do, you know, I want to try to encourage people to do something. Yeah. Um, and so having that kind of having that kind of responsibility tacked on to um, policing as we understand it, I do think changes um, uh, how we understand policing. So I think it's both, right? We can learn. They can. They they are learning and growing from this experience, much like I think Buffalo and other police departments uh, across the country are going to as well. I wonder though if the obligation to intervene, uh, the obligation to care for life, isn't at automatic conflict with the idea of policing. Deescalate. Is exert your authority so you can control the situation and prevent something bad happening. And if if your job is to exert your authority, that is where some would say the slippery slope starts. So I, I had a very good friend of mine actually that did graduate work in Memphis who was a cop while he was getting his master's in philosophy. He said he didn't sleep for months. Uh, <laughs> and he had a newborn. He just said he didn't sleep for months. Yeah. Uh, and I always used to say if I ever got pulled over, I would want him to be the person to engage with because he had a very – clear understanding of what his job was. He has the authority, but having that authority does not necessarily mean you ought to exert that authority. It means you find ways to utilize that you have the authority to have a conversation, to communicate effectively that, hey, something's going amiss here because someone called me. That means things went things went awry. Mm-hmm. I'm here. What's going on? And having that kind of approach of what's going on means I see you as a person. We need to figure out what's happening so whatever is happening does not continue to escalate and we can get everybody home safely. Having that kind of approach to to just the interaction, I think, does um, – it shifts how people respond to you. I mean, again, I'm, I'm not going to say he had very rough days where he wanted to – uh, 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 perhaps deal with people in ways that they may have, he may have thought they deserved, but he also knew the job was not to abuse the authority, but to, because I have this authority, to find ways to communicate that we need to adjust this situation quickly. Did that come from who he is, or 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 was it part of the training? Because if it was part of the training in Memphis, I would assume it has to be or should be universal. Given what happened, I'm gonna guess some of it's a little of column A, a little of column B. I'm gonna I'm gonna stress probably a lot more than A than B. Uh, right. He's a wonderful man and very smart, very intelligent, and I think it reflects the need to have you know, you want bright people policing, right? You want impassion, uh, a, a compassionate, empathetic people to police, because those are people who do have a respect for not just their authority but a respect for the person in front of them, right? Um, and I do think that's something that can be trained consistently. Uh, Vanessa Wills wrote um, um, a wonderful article called Dirty Hands, and um, it, it kind of underscored that there's an assumption that we have as a public that police often are, whatever they're doing, they're supposed to be allowed to do it, much like if a, if a doctor accidentally uh, kills you in the line of trying to save your life, you're like, well, the doctor wasn't trying to kill this person. This is the nature of the beast. If someone gets harmed in the process of someone trying to, of the police doing their job, well, they weren't trying to harm this person. That's just the nature of the beast. 
I think that's a sh- uh, that's an expectation that cops are supposed to be hardened, in, uh, discompassionate, and see people as uh, objects to move and to surveil as opposed to persons. I don't think that has to be the way that that this that being safe in your communities has to happen and that the security force of the state has to work. Is there a problem, therefore, with the kind of person that wants to be an officer? I think that's something we have to deep dive into in this country. There was a report some years ago that there was a rise in white supremacists and I want to say neo-Nazis getting into police in the military, which means we have to do a better job of rooting out who's doing what. It's similar to the wandering cops sort of issue where we're not where we don't have enough information perhaps traveling because somebody who is haywire and cheek to waga shouldn't be able to move to Tonawanda and get the same job. That's not supposed to happen, but based on how things were operating, that likely could happen. Um, so that that does make me think that, um, you know... Mm. A mindset. Yes, we need to have a shift in mindset for who's being a valuable... Uh, candidate to be a police officer, right? Is it, they need to be able to do the physical stuff, but what kind of mental person are you? What kind of um, uh, care and compassion do you have for persons? I, I have a friend of mine that works in a, a school district back home in St. Louis, and uh, they have to work with local police officers. And one of the things that she notices when they work with the, you know, the, the way that those officers interact with the students, you can tell they're coming from a place of, again, compassion, care, empathy, and the goal is to keep everyone safe. And that's the ver- That's what the goal is of exerting authority, quote unquote, is to make sure everyone is safe. I think having people that have that approach to policing, that the goal is not necessarily to catch the bad guys all the time, but to keep people safe, you don't end up with beatings like what we saw. And, and frankly, we know that that's not the first kind. That that's not the first time that's happened. It's just the first time we were able to get it caught like this so viscerally on body camera and on pole camera. Uh, and with with and they lied afterwards, right? Like so, that's part of the con- the part of that culture is we have an allowance that or an expectation that they're uh, they're able to do whatever it takes to capture the bad guys. But what if what they're doing doesn't even? What if it's not necessary to keep people safe? None of holding up somebody and 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 slugging him five times and kicking him in the head while he's down, that's not keeping anybody safe. How long? If I raise my hand today and say I want to be an officer. How long before I'm actually on the force in in the city of Buffalo? Do you know how long the training period is? I, I do not have that time frame off the top of my head. What is it? I, I, I myself don't know, but I've, I've heard people say that uh, under a year is not enough. Do we need more training, I guess is what I'm asking. I would think we need, if it's more, it needs to be more of whatever the appropriate or effective training would be. So case in point, I know if, they, if there's... Um, what do we call this, uh, diversity initiatives inside of training. There is a whole lot of resistance um, by a lot of people now, across institutions. That's not just policing, but inst- you know, providing uh, diversity and inclusion kinds of protocols as part of the training for the job. For a lot of people, it uh, you know, rubs them the wrong way because they see it as either uh, anathema to the job or useless or, or pushing something that they don't need to address. So I would want if we're going to have more training, it needs to be the kind of training that's going to help produce the kinds of officers we want to have. I think it reflects on what, what who do we want to be a police officer? What person? Because it should be able to be any kind of person that's willing to help keep their space safe, secure, and sound, and protect the civilians around you. 
whoever wants to do that job, understanding that they have to have a care for the civilians, a care for their community. I want to know more about that person, I suppose. I, I understand thoroughly what you're saying. But I also know that if I approach someone and say, are you racist? Their answer is going to be, of course not. So how, <laughs> how are, are you a good person and qualified to be a cop? Why, yes. Of, yes, of I am. Of course I am. Uh, how, how do you get beyond that? That's a great question, right? Like, how can we root out yeah. um, um, the, the, the biases in people and go, okay, this is too much bias for you to end up yeah, doing yeah. this job. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Floor drops out, guy drops out. <laughs> I... I, the off the top of my head, one thing we have are things like the like the implicit bias test, the implicit bias test that Harvard has. Perhaps uh, there could be an experiment done where okay, X amount of police or X uh, yeah, X amount of police officers tend to score in this number. So if you score above that, we can't have you. And mm. and they find a way to you know much like we have exams. You know they have to pass. They have to know the laws. They have to be able to pass physical exams. Perhaps it would have to be some sort of a, a, a cultural bias exam or um, an implicit bias exam. Because, again, like you said, very few people are going to say, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm the racist one. Yeah, I, I want to beat people's heads in. Right. But, uh, and, and thankfully, I imagine there are some people that say that, and I hope they get disqualified right, immediately. Right, right, right. <laughs> Is there more to the training that needs to be addressed than attitude? I think specifically of guns. Um I'm aware of a case, and, and this wasn't a racial ep- episode at all, but I know of a case where uh, a, a younger kid uh, was on some LSD, did harm to himself, stabbed him all over with a, with a knife, then walked out into the driveway bleeding with the knife in his hand. And cops obviously see someone with the knife in their hand and say, this person is a threat, and they shot that person dead. Does there need to be a difference in the use of fourth force threshold. Um, would it have been okay, instead of shooting that person dead, to have hit him in the shoulder, hit him in the knee? Because the counter argument is when you give police that kind of discretion, uh, if they have to do a split-second decision about whether to kill someone or not, that they're going to be putting themselves in more risk. If, if there is a threat there, their obligation is to assume that threat is a lethal threat and eliminate it. Right. Does does the use of force threshold have to change? I think perhaps understanding the one of the, uh, this was another idea that was that pulled out of the community comments when we did the commission was uh, reframing or at least getting a very clear definition on the ideas I think nece- necessity and proportionality with use of force. So understanding that threshold might be a little bit easier for both civilians and and perhaps to give the cops more you know, more of just a square box to play in if we have perhaps more of a clear definition of what when we say necessary, does that mean le- like lethal or up to lethal? Then dispel that out. What does proportionality mean? So does knife, pro- you know, knife proportion to taser does or lethal weapon proportion to lethal weapon? Ha- having that perhaps squared out a little bit more clearly may be helpful um, because, I again, the, 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 the concern would be you don't want to have people making split-second decisions, and you don't want to expect officers to be, you know, like this isn't the Wild West where they can, yeah. you know, point and shoot and hit you in the shoulder as opposed to the, the right. you know, I I, 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 I really doubt that they're training like that. Um, so, yeah, we, we would want to address, I think, the, the idea of having a, a use of force threshold is important to maintain, but necessity and proportionality are going to be the two concepts I'd want to tackle. Um, to have a better idea of just what's what's supposed to be allowable, and 
I, you know, when I think about the 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 young man holding the knife, uh, the Paul Pelosi attack video that came out also mm-hmm. Friday morning. Sure. Right, there's two officers right there. There's a guy holding a hammer. A hammer could very well be considered a lethal weapon. They chose not to immediately engage, and Paul got unfortunately hit in the head. And that's not their officer's fault by any right. means, but that's, a, uh, I think, a reflection on the idea of that use of force, um, lethality, proportionality. Someone standing there holding a knife by themselves gets shot. Someone holding a hammer, clearly perhaps in a struggle, doesn't get engaged until the, the action happens. And so uh, I think, again, that, that reflects the idea of needing to perhaps clarify necessity and, again, proportionality for, for, for when it's okay to get down. Beyond the things that we've talked about here for the past uh, half hour or so, uh, is there something that's still on the table as part of the Reform Commission that you were part of? Was there something that just didn't make it into the final report that John Tory says, darn, it really needed to be in there? Offhand... I'm a fan of most everything that we were able to get done in that project. I can imagine there are people who would hope that we were able to push more. Personally, I I'm I would have loved to see more done, I think, on the, the social reconstruction side, but that's because that's more where my research that's lies. Where you are. That's who I am. Right. Okay. Um so on the on the police reform side, I think we did a good job of at least acknowledging and trying to promote some of the community concerns and again looking for more clarity on how things are operating. Uh, within uh, the department with things like use of force and, and uh, what was it, uh, 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 duty to intervene. Sure. Um, but I would have loved to see more on the social reconstruction side. I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, rectificatory justice, and I think part of the conversation of police reform um, is how do we respond to the aftermath of injustice because that, was, that, that young man got his rights violated in the process of getting killed. So what does it look like to, to apologize, to uh, to, to pay recompense, to even be punished uh, in these kind of situations. What does, it, what does it mean to have justice in this? Uh, in the aftermath of injustice was something that I, I would have loved to be able to push more on, but I also recognize that that's me, the researcher, yeah. wanted to get more things done. So, right. you know, can't, give it a, can't always get what you want. And, and that's a bigger topic, I think, than we have the amount of time left. So yes. uh, we'll have to have you back. I appreciate this. I'd love to come back. Thank you very much. I really love this, David. That's good. John Torrey is a professor at Buffalo State University, one of the first times we get to say that. They've uh, converted their name. Coming up next, we're going to be talking more about this policing issue. Attorney Miles Gresham is with us. He's a policy fellow at the Partnership for the Public Good, and he's been talking for a long time about accountability, ways to hold the police even more responsible, perhaps as a deterrent to prevent these kind of things from happening. All that still to come. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. Get all the trusted local news you need right to your inbox each weekday morning with the WBFO daily email. Visit WBFO.org to sign up today. WNED PBS can go everywhere you go with the WNED PBS app. Go to the app to watch shows like Kleinhand's Gift to Buffalo, Frontline, and Compact Science. Even watch on the go with the WNED PBS live stream and a 24-7 stream of WNED PBS kids. You can also see the full television schedule and what's on right now from the app. Download the WNED PBS app wherever you get your apps. Watch Buffalo's Voices of Steel on YouTube. The original WNED PBS production captures the legacy of the steel industry in Western New York through the voices of the people who worked in the mills. Anybody who never saw the steel plant in operation 
miss something. I told my kids that they really missed to see what it was like to make steel. Through remembrances of the workers, Buffalo's Voices of Steel showcases the pride Western New York still feels about its steel producing past. Watch it now on the Buffalo Toronto Public Media YouTube channel. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. Do you get the top stories delivered to your inbox every weekday morning? If not... That's because you're not subscribed to the WBFO Daily Newsletter. Go to WBFO.org to sign up for the WBFO Daily and get the latest news just as you begin your day. PBS Kids fun and educational content is available wherever you are in Western New York, whenever you want. Live stream the channel at WNED.org slash PBSKids and while you're there, you can play games, watch videos from your favorite shows like Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, Molly of Denali, and Alma's Way. And you'll find resources for parents and teachers. Visit wned.org slash pbskids today. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And welcome back. This is Dave Debo. We're talking now with attorney Miles Gresham. He's a policy fellow with the Partnership for the Public Good, and I would be hard-pressed to find someone in the past two or three years since the Black Lives Matters movement to find someone who has more consistently spoken out about the need for more police accountability. Miles, thanks for being here. Hey, Dave. Good morning. Thanks for having me. What, what was your reaction this weekend to the video? I, I know that's kind of a broad question, but I think it helps us set the table. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's a, a visceral reaction of, you know, seeing um, yet another uh, fellow American, yet another um, black man um, killed um, by police. Um, and so, you know, there was a, it was really painful, um, you know, certainly um, brought up not just memories of, of all the, you know, police beatings and, and killings that, that I've seen in, in my uh, 36 years, but also, um, you know, just uh, what we call ancestral memories, right? And and um, how this country has a legacy of um, killing black people in a public fashion um, to instill fear and to um, um, and an attempt to instill um, obedience, and that's a very old practice and. Um, you know, it's still going on. And so there's, there's that reaction. And then there was also the reaction of, um, you know, frankly, here we go again. Um, this is not uh, a, a new thing at this point. 
um, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's awful and it's, it's horrible, um, and no one should ever have to see it one time. Um, and it's not something that happens in other developed countries. But, you know, this is, again, this is not new. Um, you know, people are talking about how um, um, Mr. Nichols is crying out for his mother, and, and people are, um, you know, um, recycling images from 2020 about how, you know, um, um, how horrible it was to watch someone cry out for their mother, mother as they're getting killed by the police. Um, these images are recycled um, from two years ago because they were, you know, taken um, in response to the murder of George Floyd. So this is not um, new. Um, you know, um, this is uh, a scene that we've watched play out over and over again um, over the past um, few years with the with the um, rise of, of smartphones and social media. And this is something that goes back um, uh, um, much longer than that. Um, and so there's a, a feeling of, of deep frustration and sadness and anger uh, that comes from not only watching this, but, but knowing that this is not nearly the first time and probably won't be the last. Earlier you used the words, instill obedience. I'm wondering if that means that you feel uh, the definition of what a police officer has to do is perhaps different than what it should be. Well, no police officer ever has to do what those officers did, so no. Um, and they shouldn't be doing what those officers did, and that's not their job. Um, but there is, um, you know, a very deep current of, of anti-blackness among um, a lot of policing and police officers, even among a lot of black police officers, and all five of the officers who, who murdered Tyree Nichols were, were black. Um but but uh, there is um, among a lot of police officers in America, um, there's a there becomes um, and again this is not all of them but a lot of them there's a real um, they don't handle disobedience well even even the disobedience that we are allowed um, under the Constitution and so when they see that disobedience they often overreact um, to assert their dominance and we see that especially in interactions between police officers um, and black Americans. The reason I ask, though, about the, the premise, the idea of what an officer's job is, um, can training take care of this, or does it need to be more of a mindset change? No. Um, th- this, is a, this is a change of getting um, criminals out of the police force. There are some things that training can't. Can't fix. And, and going back to what you said about what a police officer's job is, a police officer's job um, is to protect the public um, from, from threats. It's to maintain order and enforce the laws of this country. And the laws of this country do not say um, that you are supposed to be beaten to death um, or executed um, at a traffic stop or because you refuse to obey um, um, every command of a police officer. That's not a police officer's job. Um, and, and people who do this, um, people who, who use, um, you know, excessive, grossly excessive and deadly force um, in, in, in situations where someone has committed a, a minor infraction or no infraction of all or all at all, um, they're, they're breaking the law. And that's, that's not something that can be remedied by training. And I think it's kind of 
Um, I think it's a it's a a measure of how conditioned we are in America to police violence that we look at something as brutal as what we saw in Memphis and think that this can be resolved by uh, training. There's no other job in the in the country where you know someone can beat someone to death, and we say, oh well, what if that person had been trained differently? You know, if a if a nurse mm-hmm. um, were to abuse a patient that badly and then kill them, not one person would say, oh, well, how are nurses being trained? They would say, we need to get this murderer out of the profession. Um, it's only in policing um, that we think that, you know, training is ever the answer. And if not, you know, we've had all kinds of waves of, um, you know, different police training um, over the past, you know, decade, um, and they haven't stopped these kinds of killings. Um, training works for good cops. And, and there are a lot of good cops, right? But training works for them. Training does not work for the bullies and the psychopaths um, and the racists in the police force that need to be um, um, taken out of the police force. Is there, can't help that. is there a structural bias that leaves those people on the force? And I, I know you've spoken out quite a bit about accountability, so I guess what I'm really asking is, is there a structural bias nationwide that keeps bad people on the force and specifically here in Buffalo? Absolutely, yeah. Um, the, the, the power of um, police unions has, has grown to the point where they are able, um, by and large, to um, protect um, bad officers um, from being fired. Um, or, you know, they keep bad officers on the force until they do something so egregious as what we saw in Memphis um, when they should have been fired a long time ago. Um, the Memphis police chief... Uh, for example, um, was actually fired um, from uh, from her job at the Atlanta Police Department um, because she covered up uh, an investigation um, into child pornography where the subject um, was was the spouse of, of one of her officers. Um, and now she's the head of the, the police force in Memphis. She oversaw uh, the Scorpion uh, force that, you know, uh, these officers who murdered Tyree Nichols were a part of. Um, and now she's the head of another police department. So she's just, you know, a bad cop being shuffled around. That's one example of the sort of institutional protection uh, for bad police officers. Um, there have also been studies done uh, of police unions across the country and, and find that um, it's very difficult in most cities um, to get officers um, fired. And, and certainly uh, that culture um, has worked to protect uh, bad officers in Buffalo. We know um, since the repeal um, of, of, um, of 50A, um, Civil Rights Law 50A, we, we know now um, about police disciplinary records, right? And we've, we've known for a long time um, that there are a handful of officers in Buffalo who commit um, repeated uh, violations of people's civil rights um, and, and are able to keep their jobs even when um, those violations cost the city um, millions of dollars, and they have over the past few years. Um, in Buffalo, it's a particularly sad case because in, in, in New York State, um, cities like Buffalo have the authority um, to fire police and to, um, to circumvent uh, the, the a large part of the disciplinary process that we have in place because the Court of Appeals has said that in, in cities like Buffalo, um, that disciplinary process is actually inappropriate. 
um, and that the civilian authority, um, which which flows through, um, in our case, the common counsel to the um, um, police commissioner, um, the police commissioner has the authority to fire um, those bad cops, um, but we don't use it. Um, so in Buffalo, it's particularly sad because we have a way um, to get through a lot of this um, culture that protects bad officers, and we simply have, um, you know, a lack of political will and moral courage to do so. Tell me more about that. I would have assumed that the department has the automatic right to fire a bad cop. It required a court ruling to get us there? Yeah, well, um, so in, in 2006, um, the police union uh, in New York City um, sued New York City um, over the right to fire um, officers. Um, in New York, like in, like in Buffalo and in, in a lot of places in New York, um, there's an arbitration. There was an arbitration process, right? Um, and that means that um, when an officer is brought up on, on charges um, of misconduct, um, those charges are ultimately decided by an arbitrator. Um, New York fought for the right or their police commissioner um, to, to fire those officers without such a process. And what the Court of Appeals said, um, which is the highest court in New York State, Court of Appeals said that um, in cities with certain charter authority that was granted to them by the legislature, if the cities have the charter authority to discipline police in their charter, and if that authority was granted before a certain time, um, before 1958, um, that that city has the right to um, fire police officers, that it does not have to submit to arbitration, um, and that um, whatever authority um, was, was specified in the charter, um, in, in New York City's case, the police commissioner um, has the authority to fire those officers, and New York City won that case. And so um, since then, um, other towns and, and cities in New York um, have gone to the Court of Appeals over the same right, and each time um, where um, a city has that charter authority, um, the Court of Appeals has said, um, no, you don't have to go through arbitration, that discipline is what they call an impermissible subject of bargaining, um, and that either the police commissioner or, in some cases, um, the town board um, has the right to discipline and, if necessary, fire um, bad cops. That's what the Court of Appeals said. And Buffalo has that charter authority. It was given to the city of Buffalo um, well before uh, 1958, um, and we just don't use it. Um, we, we just decide that we're going to go through an arbitration process that we don't have to go through. And as a result, um, several officers who have um, um, shot people unjustifiably, who have committed crimes, who have cost the city millions of dollars in lawsuits, um, are still on the force because we use a process for discipline that we don't have to and that protects bad cops. Have they been disciplined for things that would be considered a harbinger of Memphis or George Floyd? Uh, what, what, kind of, what kind of violations are we talking about here that have been revealed now that these records are, are made public through 50A? Uh, are they things that are really as bad as the ones that made national headlines? Yes, yes. Um, there's one officer um, who shot and, and paralyzed uh, a high school student, um, and that officer was um, um, kept on the force, and that shooting... Um, cost the city uh, millions of dollars in, in settlement money. Um, there's um, another um, officer who um, lied to 
cover up um, uh, uh, the, the killing, actually, of a, of a veteran at a bar. Um, uh, one police officer in that case was, um, was fired, but another one um, was allowed to stay on the force, even though they participated um, in the cover-up. Um, so those are just a couple of officers who have uh, you know, been involved in, in incidents that are harbingers of, of things like Memphis. And that officer that shot and paralyzed a teenager um, recently shot um, a mentally ill person uh, in 2020. Um, and that, that you know, matter is still working its way um, through the courts. Um, so, yeah, there, there are several instances um, where officers have committed um, acts of brutality, um, where they have um, covered things up, um, where their actions, um, you know, certainly um, act as harbingers of, of further violence, um, and where they've cost the city of Buffalo um, millions of dollars that we can't afford, um, and they're still there. Attorney Miles Gresham is here. He's a policy fellow with the Partnership for Public Good. Miles, you've, uh, at the beginning of the program, I said that you've, you've advocated for a long time for accountability. Uh, we will go there in just a second, but I want to ask you about other forms of reform. In Memphis, they got rid of their Scorpion unit. In Buffalo, they've got rid of their strike force that was targeting the east side primarily. Uh, Memphis is considering the end of no-knock warrants, something that's already in place in Buffalo, um, and then the obligation to intervene. Carriel Horn's law here in Buffalo is in place. Is Buffalo, apart from the stuff you just mentioned with the ability to discipline and the ability to fire, is Buffalo on the right track, at least in some areas? Um, You know, we've, we've taken some baby steps. Yeah, I think all the things that you mentioned, the, the end of no-knock warrants, um, Carriel's law establishing a duty to intervene, um, um, you know, um, um, the dismantling of the strike force, all of those things are good steps, but they are, are baby steps, and they are much smaller steps than the ones that we can be taking. Um, and that's the, the tragedy of it, is that we are not doing nearly everything that we can um, to prevent um, what happened in Memphis from happening in Buffalo. And I would note that, um, you know, the strike force was disbanded um, several years ago. That did not stop the police from killing Wardell um, Davis. That did not stop the police from killing um, Jose uh, Hernandez Rossi. Um, that did not stop the police from shooting Willie Henley. Um, Miles, so, I, I, know, I need to... I inter- I, I need to interrupt you for just a brief second. Sounds like you're on a cell phone. If you could just take a step to the left or the right, the reception will change and we'll be able to hear you better. Uh, repeat the names of those victims that you just spoke of um, that have... Okay, can you, have, can you hear me better now, Dan? A uh, little bit, yeah. Okay, I was just... I was uh, no, it's, it's, it might even be worse now, I'm afraid. Um, maybe move the other okay. direction, and I hate to do that. Normally, we have to... Uh, try and have folks in studio, but uh, I understand you you uh, weren't able to do that, and I appreciate the fact that you made time for us in our schedule, even though it has to be here on the phone. Let's give it another shot. Uh, talk to me a little bit about the cases that have happened here that worry you. Sure. Is that, a, is that Oh, okay? much better. Yep. Okay, good. Um, yeah, so again, um, you know, we've taken baby steps towards reforming police, um, but we have not gotten at the issue of police accountability. Um, The strike force was disbanded several years ago, and that was a good step, but that did not stop police from 
um, killing um, Wardell Davis. It did not stop police from killing um, Jose Hernandez Rossi. It did not stop police from uh, shooting uh, Willie Henley. Um, and, and so, again, um, these are baby steps, but these are not sufficient um, to stop police from using unnecessary deadly force and putting civilians in danger. When I introduced you at the top of the program, I spoke about how I think if there's one theme in all of your advocacy, it is for more police accountability. What does accountability look like? What kind of things should Buffalo do in that arena in order to make sure that we don't end up with a a Minnesota or a Memphis? Um, It's it's pretty simple, really. If you use unjustified force, if you use excessive force against civilians, um, you are held accountable, and you are, in most cases, um, fired. Um, You know, we understand that, you know, police are allowed to use deadly force in certain situations. Um, That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about where police use excessive or deadly force in situations where excessive or deadly force is not necessary and is not justified. And in those situations, those police should simply be fired. It's, it's not it's not uh, rocket science. And in New York State, um, we in the city of Buffalo, because of our charter, we have the authority to do just that. It, it's really simple. The police commissioner has the authority to fire officers um, that, that commit misconduct Right now, today, are there are there things are there things in a collective bargaining agreement though that would prevent him from doing so? Um, no, because again, Dave, what the Court of Appeals says is that the charter authority that the city of Buffalo has trumps what the collective bargaining agreement says about discipline. So, what the Court of Appeals is saying is that regardless of what a collective bargaining agreement for the police says about discipline. If the city has the charter authority to discipline police, the city can discipline police how it sees fit. It does not have to go by what the collective bargaining agreement says. That is the crux of the Court of Appeals decision um, in New York in 2006, um, in, in, in Wallkill in, in 2012, I believe, in Schenectady in 2017. There's a, there's a whole line of Court of Appeals cases that says that where a city has charter authority, it can ignore the disciplinary provisions of a collective bargaining agreement and discipline police in a manner that it sees fit. What? That is what the Court of Appeals says, and that's what Buffalo has the authority to do. What sort of review mechanism is in place? I know the city council has uh, or had at one point a um, police review board. What do we have now? What do we need? Yeah, we have a a different iteration of a police review board, but it's completely advisory. Um, It doesn't have the authority to make um, um, any disciplinary decisions. Um, So it's 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 a symbolic board, essentially. Um, what we need is either um, a police commissioner who, who um, you know, um, decides to use the authority that he currently has, um, and that just requires uh, Commissioner Gamalia to start doing things differently. That doesn't require any new laws or anything like that. Um, so we could have that. 
Um, we could, in theory, have the Common Council, which is our city's legislature, um, take back the authority to discipline police from the police commissioner and start using it themselves. Or they could delegate that authority um, to something like a, like a police advisory board. Um, so those are, those are different ways that police accountability can be established. Um, and the council can do that because initially the state legislature gave disciplinary authority to the common council, and the common council later transferred that authority to the police commissioner where it rests now. Um, so the, legis the common council could take that authority back, um, or the police commissioner could just start using it. Um, so those are, those are some of the ways that accountability can be um, established. But, but all of them require um, a, a, a will um, on the part of our city leaders to use the authority that they already have. Is there anything, as we close here, is there anything that Buffalo can learn specifically from the situation in Memphis, or is it more of a, a touchstone, an example that just brings these issues and these, these emotions to the surface so they can be addressed? <clears throat> well, yeah, they can learn from every instance of uh, police brutality and, and police murder. Um, in, in Memphis specifically, um, you know, we can learn that, um, you know, how, how not to do a traffic stop, first of all, um, how to, um, you know, um, what, what bad escalation looks like. We can certainly learn that. Um, we can learn that, you know, um, while um, having um, um, black representation on a police force certainly matters, that that is not a cure-all um, to, to anti-black police brutality, um, because as we saw in Memphis, all the officers that committed this murder were black. Um, we can learn about the interactions between police and other first responders. Um, we, we saw, you know, there were firefighters and other EMTs that stood around while the beating was happening who have been fired. Um, and, and we can infer from that that when police take the lead in the situation, uh, first responders are less inclined uh, to intervene, um, which is why we need um, a, a mental health response um, process in this city where police do not lead and where mental health professionals are the ones that lead. Um, there are all kinds of things that we can learn, but ultimately um, this is an example of what happens and what can happen um, when we do not hold police accountable. And we have the authority to do that in Buffalo. And if we want to protect our people and if we want to restore trust between the community and the police department, we have to start using that authority. One last question. As you watched the video, did it strike you that five officers were charged, but the video included many, many more officers than those five? Not specifically involved in, in the murder, but nonetheless there, not intervening. Yeah, it was, it was very striking. Um, it was, you know, heartbreaking, but it wasn't surprising. We, we've seen that here. That's why, um, you know, Carrie Alhorn had to fight for her law, right? Because we, we've seen, we, that's, that's a common thing. Um, I'm glad that the, the two sheriff's deputies who were on the scene uh, in Memphis uh, were, were fired for not intervening. Um, but yeah, what, what's striking is that we in this country and what we call the freest country in the world where we have a history of fighting for our own freedom and others um we uh we have been beaten down we have been conditioned to accept um unnecessary police violence against our fellow citizens and it's heartbreaking and um we need to do something about it and we can all right miles thank you so much for your time especially joining us 
on um, short notice because these events unfolded over the weekend, and we needed to make sure we were talking about them today. Miles Gresham, a senior policy fellow with the Partnership for Public Good, also a local attorney. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown. I'm Dave Debo. Thanks for listening. Thank you.